I'm Effie Parks. Welcome to Once Upon a Jane, the podcast. This is a place I created for us to connect and share the stories of our not-so-typical lives. Raising kids who are born with rare genetic syndromes and other types of disabilities can feel pretty isolating. What I know for sure is that when we can hear the triumphs and challenges from others who get it, we can find a lot more laughter, a lot more hope, and feel a lot less alone. I believe there are some magical healing powers that can happen for all of us through sharing our stories, and I'll take all the help I can get. Once Upon a Gene is proud to be part of Bloodstream Media. Living in a family affected by rare and chronic illness can be isolating, and sometimes the best medicine is connecting to the voices of people who share your experience. This is why Bloodstream Media produces podcasts, blogs, and other forms of content for patients, families, and clinicians impacted by rare and chronic diseases. Visit bloodstreammedia.com to learn more. Hello. Welcome to Once Upon a Gene. I'm your host, Effie Parks. The Global Genes Patient Advocacy Summit is coming up in September in San Diego. I hope you can come. The link to register and more information will be in the show notes or at globalgenes.org. So check it out. We celebrate CTNNB1 Awareness Day this week. My husband and I are heading to Illinois as we speak. Well, as I speak, as you're listening to this when it comes out anyway. We're heading to a family meetup where we're going to meet some CTNNB1 families for the first time. And I cannot wait and hope to have lots of updates from our scientists and just from general family stories. I can't wait to share it with you. Today's guest is such a gem. She's amazing. She's the Senior Director and Head of Patient and Physician Services at UBC. She earned a BS in Psychology and Neurobiology from the University of Maryland and has over 20 years of experience in the therapeutic development industry. Today, we're talking all things clinical trials. She is so passionate for ensuring the patient journey and implementing that in every program she helps develop. Please enjoy my conversation with Shazia Ahmad. Hello, Shazia. Welcome to the show. Thanks, Effie. So excited to be on today. Thanks for having me. Such an honor. <laughs> I'm so excited to talk with you. I know we've been girlfriends on Twitter for some time, but it's always so nice when I get to move that over to to the show. So yay for us. Absolutely. <laughs> yes. And one of these days we'll meet in real life. <laughs> uh, it's happening. Absolutely. <laughs> I'm surprised it hasn't already, actually. <laughs> exactly. Well, today we're covering the topic of clinical trials. I know your passion runs deep in this area, so can you please give us a little background on what you do for work with designing clinical trials and why you're so passionate about it? Yeah, of course, Effie. So I started my career at the NIH as a research coordinator, working across different institutes, which included NIAID, NINDS, and also the NCI. And that's where my work in rare diseases and infectious diseases, even oncology, started in working closely with patients, parents, caregivers, care partners, and essentially driving patient engagement and communication about the different trials for families coming into the institutes. Fast forward, uh, UBC, I've been involved heading up a division, which is called Patient and Physician Services. And um, essentially, we are also involved with patient advocacy and stakeholder engagement. But um, what's really what really invigorated my passion for the rare disease space is my own 
personal journey. I have a daughter when she was three. She's now in college. But we, we have a story that ends with a positive ending where we went uh, through a phase where we did not know what the diagnosis was. And I'm sure many in the rare disease community this resonates with where many go for years. But we were lucky. It was only a week, but it was a week that was very, very stressful, not knowing what the diagnosis was. And we ultimately learned it was Kawasaki disease. And because we got that diagnosis in a timely way before going into phase two of KD, we were able to get the treatment in order for her to recover completely. That whole experience uh, really resonated with me and the impact of rare disease advocacy organizations, for example, the Kawasaki Foundation, linking with the key opinion leaders at UCSF San Diego, for example, that was really important for the Children's Hospital we, where we were close to at the time. My husband was actually doing his residency, and we were lucky because we were near a teaching hospital. But because of those connections, the communication and getting that timely diagnosis, she was able to recover. And it really left a mark on me where in my career moving forward, I would always make sure to integrate advocacy and really understanding the patient journey, the impact on the family and any program that I would support in healthcare moving forward. That's the world's fastest diagnosis, and I know you had a lot to do with it by, by just searching on your own, and I'm so glad you had those resources, and I'm so glad that she was okay and she was able to get that treatment. That's just an amazing experience for sure. Thank you, and that, that's what really resonates is you think about all the families that, you know, those that don't even have a diagnosis, and then those that do get diagnosed, now almost 95% of the rare diseases have no treatment. So there's so much work to do, and I think it's so important. I think what we really want to talk about today is my passion for making sure that the patient voice, the voice of the parent, the family members is always integrated into any of the clinical trial design, strategy, outreach, and really there's a true collaboration with industry, which is really important to move things forward. Mm -hmm. I think most people assume there's nothing out there for us since we are dealing with rare diseases. And like you said, only 5% have a treatment out of 10,000 plus diseases. Can you sort of demystify the opportunity and contributions surrounding a clinical trial and why families like mine should maybe consider seeking them and why it might be meaningful? Absolutely. So there's two parts to that. So there's families that are seeking a trial, but there's also the families that don't really know how much of an impact or contribution that they could make to future trials. And I think of those as like the ambassadors or the patient advocates, the, the rare disease advocates that could really support industry in driving a further understanding of a particular disease diagnosis to advance more trials forward. But to the first part of the question, I think it's so important for parents, families to understand the impact that their participation could make in participating because it's hope for a possible treatment. But 
Most importantly, it's helping the overall patient community for that particular diagnosis, which is huge and it's critical. And there's a lot that goes in and thinking about whether to participate, whether the child or patient meets the criteria, but there's so much that they are giving to progress for possible treatment. And that's really important. Yeah. And it's just so exciting, right? To be able to be a part of blazing that trail and gaining that experience. Oh, yes, absolutely. I mean, I go back to my early days in my career at the NIH, where we would have patients, families coming from all over the world, seeking treatments and wanting to be part of a clinical trial. The, you know, those were early phase trials, but it's the hope um, that you see across the faces of the families and the parents. And that really is what ignites all of us that are involved in this industry. So I know that the patient voice, the caregiver voice, the patient patient centricity sort of term is kind of all the buzz right yes. now, which is great, right? And we don't want that to get lost. Why would you say that the narrative has seemed to change so strongly and rightfully so just within the last couple of years? And what were the barriers before and why and what sort of things have been put in place to kind of change that? So I think what's really, uh, you know, it definitely is a buzzword, but what's changed is it's becoming more of an understanding on what that truly means. And it's going back to the beginning of a protocol design and really reaching out to the specific rare disease organization, the parents, the patients, um, being part of the patient-focused drug development meetings to really hear the feedback from the, the different um, families about their the daily journey. That's really important. And that's how industry is able to develop in collaboration meaningful endpoints. And I think that's what really true patient centricity is, where you are really putting the patient first, putting the families first, and really learning about what could impact and really be a change maker for that patient, for the family, for a particular disease. And that's really important, especially when you're designing a clinical trial, the way you communicate a clinical trial or even a registry, that really is important when you really think about it that way. And then it also is about, for many rare diseases, there's, you know, diagnosis, the diagnostic odyssey is long, could take several years, sometimes even beyond five, seven years. But it's also creating that understanding and working with physicians also in the communities to really to break down barriers and really make sure that they are integrating everything that that patient needs to make sure that they are the center of really helping to support participation in a clinical trial or registry because sometimes what we find is that your own physician the community may not even know about a trial or how to participate and it's often we find rare disease families are educating the providers in their community. So we want to make sure that we create more patient-centric focused language and communication to do all those things to move forward. Mm. Yeah, you brought something up that I do have a question about, and I don't know. When 
there is a clinical trial available. I know that, you know, in a perfect world, your doctor is supposed to suggest it to you or you're just supposed to be savvy and be scrolling along the worst website in the world, clinicaltrials.gov. But why isn't the industry who has created this trial seeking out the patient advocacy groups and like putting on, you know, a flyer for us? Like, why aren't I being told this by my patient advocacy group because industry went to them? Why isn't that happening? It's a great question. <laughs> We're often asking that too. I, I think the challenge is often some of the advocacy organizations traditionally have been more focused on providing more of that resource, disease awareness, support. And then there's some advocacy organizations, FE, that are really involved in that research, education, and awareness or building consortiums. So the challenge is I think we need more, more collaborations with industry and advocacy to do that. And what we really do need is we need something that's more simpler than clinicaltrials.gov because it's confusing for patients, but then the rare disease families, it's even, it's harder because your traditional trials are not in the communities of where the rare disease patient could be. And it's already, you know, it's limited enough um, in a traditional study. But when you think about the rare disease patient population, it's even more scarce. So there's so much work to do there. Yeah. I do have to say that I see so many companies, so many industry companies, like really showing up and really asking these questions and really sitting down to listen, which I find really valuable. And it gives me a lot of hope. I'm seeing a lot of positive, just really go-getters honestly, that I trust. Yeah. Yeah. When you were talking about meaningful endpoints, I hear a lot from my friends who've been in clinical trials about, you know, what really matters to them and how they had no clue. Do you have an example of either when one of these went really, really right and like you just got to drive it home for that patient or maybe when something maybe didn't go right and you learned something really important? Yeah, so I worked on a number of rare disease programs and you know I'm I'm keeping this very specific to rare disease today, but there <laughs> there's a couple that come to mind and one is in the area of amyloidosis where we needed to really understand what were important factors to the patient before we designed the protocol with the sponsor or even developed an outreach strategy um, in identifying patients. And what we learned in the protocol design making simple modifications to allow for home nursing visits or even just, um, you know, one less visit to the office made a huge impact for the patient. And those endpoints that we would not be able to gather in a traditional coming to the office setting, we were able to gather. Those were outcomes that really mattered to the patient. For example, being able to walk down the stairs on a certain day, I mean, we were able to capture like real world evidence that really mattered to the patient. So that was really impactful. Yeah, it's beautiful how it's evolving, right? And becoming a little more human touch to it. It's funny that it was so archaic and like going to the DMV and it was just stuck in this one way. And even talking to patients was like taboo or not acceptable at all. Exactly. And then I think about some of the programs that I worked on. Pediatric MS is rare, and it's it's a, quite a challenge for the family to bring their child to a visit that's, you know, every other week. And then integrating simple things like a concierge service that literally 
makes it easier to get to the site because those kind of visits that they had to have done had to occur at the site. But just simple modifications, Effie, when you listen to the feedback from parents, patients, caregivers, it just makes a world of a difference and you get better compliance on your protocol, but you really, you, you make it a good clinical trial experience for not just the patient, but also the family. So we also find in rare diseases, the family is very much involved in the care. 100%. Right? <laughs> yeah. <laughs> I have a couple friends who come to mind who have participated in trials, and it's left an epic bad taste in their mouths. Obviously, it was probably a couple years ago. How would you nudge someone like that in our rare disease community to give it another go, especially since, you know, these endpoints that are being brought to your attention now can be curated more closely to the patient and caregiver than they used to be. Right. I mean, that that really makes me sad that it was a bad experience for them. What would be really important for me, if they were in my trial or if they were in any trial, is to really understand, you know, what caused that to be a bad experience. Because what I'm doing on some of the trials that I work on is when we get to different points in the program, we work with our sites to gauge feedback from the participants on how things are going, if there's anything we can do to improve their participation, the retention, make it a better engagement. Because there's things that you can integrate to really make it a better clinical trial experience. But what I'm finding often is that sponsors will have the clinical trial meet the target enrollment and data. We'll get to the final data analysis and everything, but there's no information or a summary given back to patients or you know participants. What's really important, and this resonates very much with participants, is to know what they contributed to. Even if it's, you know, if it's positive, that should be provided. If it's negative, that should be provided. Everything that they participated um, and what they contributed to should be part of the lay summary, which is usually developed um, and provided to participants, but not on all programs. And a lay summary is essentially a clinical trial summary of the outcome of the results in a patient-friendly format. And I think that that could make a huge difference. And really, I think that's what causes some of the bad experiences too, where participants don't know what they contributed to. Yeah, I think that can make people feel abandoned and used in some way when they go through all of these motions and whether they were fully compliant or not, but they still did all of this work in a life that can be very, very difficult to manage another another thing. And then they hear nothing back. Exactly. What kind of language are you seeing sort of shift in ways that you speak with patients and caregivers? Yeah, I think uh, we made a lot of improvements in this way where it's a lot about education and awareness and not so much where we need you to participate. It's more about educating about clinical trials and the awareness about a particular disease, which eventually then drives to participation for potential clinical trial. What's happening, especially for rare diseases, is someone in that family or that patient's community may see a particular clinical trial that someone they know would be a good fit for. And it's that education awareness that we create, which eventually drives for more, you know, better engagement and identification of potential participants. 
Mm-hmm. You know, I'm obsessed with podcasts, Shazia. I really want someone to start this podcast where it's past clinical trial participants, assuming they're allowed to talk about it at that point, all sharing their experiences and kind of learning from each other. Because it's really hard to even find other rare patients in my own experience who've been in clinical trials and all of that stuff. They're very spread out. And not everyone's on social media. And I wish this conversation was going on more on the caregiver and patient side. So everyone could take a peek inside as well, like on industry side and clinical trial designs. Yeah, exactly. I mean, I wish there was a way to do that. We could do it and make it anonymous. (laughs) Yeah, (laughs) totally. We'll change our voices. What are some of the unique or even transformational changes that you're seeing right now going on in regards to the designing the trials and getting gathering like a more diverse population? How are you how are you going about doing that? Yeah, diversity is a huge topic. That's a whole nother podcast and something very important to me as well. And as, as I work on clinical trials, what I'm seeing, which is really positive, is that more advocacy organizations, um, even individual patient advocates are really truly partnering with industry and really making an impact early on. You really, you really see the true programs that I really have the proper protocol design and really thought through how they're going to reach potential participants have really integrated those collaborations early on and you know I don't need to name those sponsors but we can we can identify those easily by just seeing the way that they brought products forward right i think that's true collaboration what i'm also seeing is that a lot of the new technologies that are coming out for improving diagnosis even creating more communication education and awareness about rare diseases in general, not just clinical trials. There's a lot of good collaboration going on with patient communities. And I think NORD, Global Genes, and then the umbrella organizations within NORD are doing an excellent job with that. I think that's going to continue and probably even bring more collaborations forward. Yes. I really genuinely love opening up my LinkedIn and Twitter every morning to see yes. this exact stuff. Like what, who, who did something amazing yesterday that I need to know about? Exactly. And yeah, like the technology side of it and like wearable devices and all of that stuff that's just going to couple with this is so exciting. Very exciting. Especially, I mean, even FE decentralized trials, they're even the hybrid component, because that's what I really see going well for potential rare disease programs. When they integrate like true patient advisory counsel and feedback and really integrate that feedback to design proper, you know, models to actually drive that forward, it really does work very well. Mm. So many listeners are new parents, and they're just like sponging up everything they can. Can you break down those two types of trials for people who don't know yet what they are? Sure. So decentralized trials, there's 100% DCT, or there's a hybrid approach. So the 100% DCT is where a sponsor will work with the DCT supplier, our service provider, to conduct a clinical trial that you can essentially participate in, but be able to participate 
at your home and be able to do telemed type visits and still be able to participate than going into a traditional study site or center. But the hybrid approach is where some of your visits are at the site. You know, sometimes it's the academic institution or it could be your physician that's part of that study or registry. And the, some of the other visits are done at home through the telemed option. And I think for rare disease programs, for some of them, I've seen that working very well, especially where some of the visits can be done at home and data and important information can be collected by just having maybe the telemed visit or even having a home nurse come to the home. And this resonates so much, especially Effie for the rare disease community, where it's such a challenge to go into sites, to the study visits. Some of these centers are miles and miles away. Sometimes you have to go like two or three states over. You probably know this very much. You know, it's, it's, it's a challenge. I have a friend in the rare disease community that just traveled to the NIH and it was a very long trip. It's a lot to think about and I'm hoping and I think that this could be an incredible move for more and more rare disease type programs. Yes. Thank you for explaining that so perfectly. And yes, it it makes a huge difference. I'm remembering a moment when I had to get some blood draws for Ford to send off to our natural history study, but insurance wasn't like, hey, why do you need this? This doesn't have to do with your insurance, blah, blah, blah. And exactly. someone came to my house and performed that blood draw there with help from the organization to get that off. That's awesome. Yeah. Yep. Huge makes, makes a huge, huge difference. difference. Yes. <laughs> <laughs> totally. Yeah. Let's see. Uh, ooh, what are the gaps? What are the gaps with industry right now? And what? How do we bridge that with advocacy? Yeah. So the gaps that I see is that industry is starting to do a good job. Like I said, in linking with advocacy and understanding the journey and bringing that into all design and implementation. But what often happens is they complete the clinical trial and sometimes that awareness, that kind of continuous conversation with that patient community is not going. So we need more community building within industry to keep those communities engaged. I think there's gaps there. And the other gap is that we we need more sponsors to work together. There's so much that we could do if we really conquer some of these rare diseases together and come together as a, as a community. Like all the patients, the caregivers, the care partners, the different academic centers, and the f- community physicians to really work with industry to see if we can work closer together to really create a bridge or a platform where we can learn from each other. Uh, yeah. Is there a conference for that? Do we just make a conference? Right? How do we get yeah, that job done? Exactly. <laughs> Um, Yeah, I 100% agree with you on the continuous listening. I was actually just doing a panel last week about this exact topic and how it's not just endpoint there. This is done. We're good to go. It's doing it every single time and remaining in contact with these patients, these caregivers and these advocacy groups and making it a conversation, a lifelong conversation. Exactly. Yeah. Oof. Well, if you could have one thing happen for clinical trials in the next year, Shazia, what would it be? Would it be that giant collaborative brain? Oh, yeah. That'd be great. <laughs> can I do that in a year? <laughs> yes, I think you can. Right? You've got a lot of pep in your oh, step. Oh, gosh. If I could, I would. <laughs> I'll try. <laughs> uh, well, you're so smart. And I 
really value your voice because you have such a gentle spirit about you, Shazia, and I and I know you care. And that's all like caregivers and I think patients wanna know is that you genuinely care and you genuinely see us and you want to make a difference for the good of yes. humanity and that this isn't business, that it's personal. And I see that from you every single day. Thank you, Effie. Yeah, especially I think it's it's professional passion from the beginning from my work that started at the NIH, but that in, you know, within my life, that experience with my child and, you know, getting to that diagnosis, that just invig invigorated my passion for the rare disease space and really making sure that we all work together, especially bridging that advocacy and industry collaboration and really making it easier for patients to get that diagnosis. But then those that don't, they get access to clinical trials that could really help them. Yeah, because we have work to do. Yes. <laughs> yes. <laughs> is there anything that I didn't ask you? And if it is okay, where can people contact you if they have questions? Yeah, you can always uh, reach out to me on LinkedIn or you can send me a message and we can connect. And I'm active on Twitter, too, for my rare disease community, <laughs> as you know. <laughs> All right, Shazia, thank you so much for being my guest. I'm so glad we got to put this episode together and I can't wait to release it. I know that my community is this this subject is top of mind. So I really appreciate your insight. Thank you so much for all the work that you're doing. Thank you, Effie, and thank you for everything that you do in elevating the voices of everyone that's involved in advancing research for rare diseases. Absolutely. I hope you've been enjoying this podcast. If you like what you hear, please share this show with your people, and please make sure to rate and review it on iTunes or wherever you get your podcasts. You can also head over to Instagram, Facebook, and Twitter to connect with me and stay updated on the show. If you're interested in sharing your story, or if you have anything you would like to contribute, please submit it to my website at effieparks.com. Thank you so much for listening to the show and for supporting me along the way. I appreciate you all so much. I don't know what kind of day you're having, but if you need a little pick-me-up, Ford's got you.